Thank you for joining the Home Church Podcast. For more information, visit us at myhomechurch.org. I don't know how else to put it. I'm so gripped by what we're talking about over these last few weeks because I feel like God is really stripping us down to the one thing that we were made for. It's, it's to really just be so centered on the presence of the Lord. And we've gone through a, a unique season where because of what's happened with COVID, we've lost, uh, not lost, but we've had to shut things down. And at first it seemed frustrating, but actually I see that God's hand was in it in order for us to really uh, be established in what it means to be a house of prayer. Do you know that's, that's Jesus' definition of what the house should be? That's actually what Jesus said. He says, my house shall be a house of prayer. And I feel that that expression is really, it's, it's, um, we're growing in, 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 a, in what it means for us corporately to look like a house of prayer. And I, again, I'm gonna, this is actually our fourth week doing this. We'll, we'll probably spend this week and then uh, next um, Sunday as well. And then we'll, we'll leave it there for now. There's something we'll come back to. But I, I just want you to know that uh, my heart in this is not to, uh, not to force people to get, get involved in this. Like Pastor Crystal mentioned that Friday nights we started these beholding sets. It's all part of what we're doing here and what I'm talking about. Our vision is to not just have one night a week, but that we're going to have multiple times every day where we're coming before the presence of the Lord to worship and pray and just be centered on Him. And I want you to know that I, my goal is not to try to, you know, strong arm you into it. I hope that you're being provoked when we see the life that's on a body that actually says we're going to commit to this. Like, we're going to commit to really loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. I want you to know there's, like, grace that spills out into every area of your life. There's testimonies that are already coming forth from the few Fridays. We've only started a few weeks ago where, where just stuff in our hearts that is so deep-rooted, like sin just gets addressed in our lives when we get before his, his, his perfect presence. And he starts confronting our imperfections, and his grace changes us. And there's just so much life in what's happening. So we're going to dive in another week on what it means to be a house of prayer. This is the fourth time we're doing this, and I'm, uh, I'm excited for today. So you guys ready to learn? All right, so I want you to open up in your Bibles to uh, Amos, Amos chapter 9, and that's going to be our primary text. We'll get there in a few, a few minutes. I'm going to just kind of share and set some things up, but you can turn there now. I'm going to be reading out of the New King James, but Amos chapter 9 in particular, uh, verses 11 to 15. If you, um, as you're turning there, I'll just let you know if you haven't been with us the last few weeks, uh, you can... Get plugged in on the podcast to follow up because this is so important for us. This is so important in where we're moving. Our mission here is beholding Jesus and bringing his kingdom. And again, I feel like the house of prayer, uh, what we're doing uh, is, is, uh, is really going to lead us to, to fulfill God's mandate for this house. All right. So before we get into Amos chapter 9, I just want to share briefly a few thoughts to recap where we've been and also just kind of put... Um, uh, lay a groundwork for us for this morning, because today's going to be good. Today we're really going to see how the worship prayer movement is actually a kingdom movement. And, and what we're doing when we come in this room, it's bigger than just that room. Like, it, it's, it, it leads to incredible things. Before we get in that, I, I want to just, I want to set us, set us up here. The house of prayer. We've been talking about how the house of prayer is deeply connected to David's tabernacle. Right, so if you've been here, you uh, hopefully now you're kind of getting some understanding of David's tabernacle. But the reason we've been here is because when Jesus came into Jerusalem and into the temple, Jesus says, "It is written, 
my house shall be a house of prayer. So in other words, when Jesus came in and began to turn over the tables and drive out religion and entertainment and business, Jesus says it is written, meaning that this has already been set up in the past. That there's, there's something that's been established already. Jesus, see a lot of times when I read that, I would always get caught up in the, in the flipping of the tables. But I didn't realize that Jesus also had an expectation of what the house of God should look like. There was something that he was, he was desiring to see in it. And what we've, what we've been exploring these last few weeks is how I believe David's, David's tabernacle is one of the greatest corporate expressions of what it looks like to be a house of prayer. In other words, what it looks like to be a house of fellowship, communion, a house that is centered on the presence of God, that has committed to worship and prayer and the life that comes from that. So David's tabernacle, if you haven't been here, here's like the... The 32nd Cliff Notes, David's tabernacle, he, he established this tent on Mount Zion in Jerusalem where he placed the Ark of the Covenant in the middle of it. It was the presence of the Lord. And David was led by the Lord to do these things. And, and what he did was is when he set up the Ark in the middle, he then surrounded the Ark with musicians and singers. And he had gatekeepers. He actually hired 10,000 musicians, singers, and gatekeepers. He paid them so that this was their primary function and occupation. He probably broke them into 24 sets so that there were one-hour sets, 24 hours in a day. It says that day and night they worshiped around the Ark. In the tabernacle of, of David, there was no veil. There was no per partition. All of this speaks to what we would have access in the new covenant because Jesus' body would ultimately tear the veil. And so for 33 years, which is also prophetic for Jesus, they offered up sacrifices, not according to the Mosaic law, but with their lips. It, it, it's so, so beautiful. And we tapped in the last two weeks about... Where did David get this idea? And we looked at the throne room of heaven, Revelation 4 and 5. I gave you guys a handout. It's fascinating to find out that the structure of what David set up, the way he had his leadership, four worship leaders, 24 elders, it's exactly parallel to what we see in the throne room right now. Like right, right now around heaven, there's four living creatures and 24 elders and worship that's unceasing. I believe in my heart that, that God actually gave David insight and he tapped into something uh, that, uh, that was heavenly and actually released it on earth. And this is why David's kingdom prospered. Simply because he got people around the presence of the Lord and got them to worship. And actually this was the kingdom of heaven coming on earth, right? So I, I want you to just see this though because this is so beautiful. I saw this parallel that I haven't seen before as I was reading through David's tabernacle and Jesus, right? When, when David decides to bring in the ark, because the ark of the covenant... The Ark of the Covenant was in a, in a barn under the leadership of Saul. It was, it was a side issue when Saul was leading. And when David comes to leadership in 1 Chronicles 13, he says, here's my strategy for reviving this nation. We're going to bring God back at the center of it. He says, we're going to bring the Ark back in the center. And when the Ark comes into Jerusalem, the Ark is met with extravagant worship. So, so you got to picture this. The Ark which is representative of the presence of God in the Old Covenant. Literally, God himself coming in their midst into Jerusalem, it's met with this worship. Even David himself, it says that he's exchanged his kingly garments for priestly garments, and, and he, he just, he dances joyfully. I mean, he, he, is, he is so lost in the fact that God is entering in. And then it says right from there, he puts the ark in the tent on Mount Zion and establishes that 24-7 worship and prayer, right? So check this out. Fast forward to Matthew 21. And we see Jesus with his triumphal entry. Where is Jesus entering? Jerusalem. 
The true ark is now entering into Jerusalem, and in many ways, he is met with a similar response. There is palm branches being laid out. There are people crying out, Hosanna, son of David, which literally means you're the fulfillment of David's leadership. And just as David took the ark and put it in a temple so that they could now worship it and be centered on it, what does Jesus, the true ark, do? Goes right into the temple. Except when Jesus goes into the temple, he does not find worship. He finds business. He finds, he finds commerce. He finds entertainment. He finds all these other things. He does not find people adoring, beholding, setting their attention on him. The true ark walks into the temple and they don't even recognize him. And this is why he says that my house shall be a house of prayer. Listen, he's not an angry tyrant God. His heart was broken over the fact saying, guys, this is the precedent. This is how it always has been. And I'm in your midst and you don't even recognize it. Like, these are the things that churches and us as individuals, we find our source of strength from. Like, look how many numbers we have. Look at all the stuff that we're doing. Rather than really the one mark of being, is Jesus recognizable in our midst? Like, when someone walks in here, can they recognize Jesus in here? Honestly, all the, all the other stuff is secondary. Can they, can they sense the Lord is moving in our body? Jesus says, this is, this is the mark of, of success. And you know what he said? After he says, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer. He says, but you've made it a den of robbers. Who's he talking to, right? Now, he's probably addressing, like, everyone can hear this, but I believe specifically Jesus is addressing the leadership of the day. And he's saying, you've made this a den of robbers. He's quoting Jeremiah 7, 11. And look, there's a lot to it, but here's what I really believe he's saying. is He's saying, you guys are stealing. What are they stealing? The hearts of the people. The affections of the people. The attention of the people. He says, guys, you should be leading people to be centered on me. Instead, you've got them focused on all these other things, and you're robbing them and and their hearts from me. Can I just tell you, like, I I, I just feel like there's so much life on this of we need to come under Jesus' definition for the body. And I don't want to lead you anywhere else but to Jesus because he's the only one who can transform. Like, yeah, my role in others, we shepherd, but our job is to shepherd you to the good shepherd. Listen, let me share one more thing on this. This is, this is I, I've, I was reading through this. I kind of mentioned last week. It's really incredible. Before David brings the ark into Jerusalem, just follow this. First Chronicles 13, 2 Samuel 6 says that David tried to bring the ark in a certain way, and he actually, it was a major failure. And I'm sharing this because I believe it is so prophetic for what happens even like especially today and how God wants to just like really confront this in the body. What David did was, he was excited, passionate to bring God in the midst, but what it said is that he, he set up a cart, a new cart, and it says that he put the ark on the cart, and then he put two men around, around it. He put Ahio before it, and he put Uzzah beside it, okay? And this oxen would carry this cart with these men into Jerusalem, and you know what happened? The oxen stumbled, and the ark began to fall. Uzzah went to grab it, and he actually died, so what happened was is that the ark was put into a man's house by the name of Obed-Edom. This is all First Chronicles 13. And, and it was in his home for three months. Personally, I believe that's where David really received insight into how this, this tabernacle should be set up. And the fact that Levites were called to carry the presence on their shoulders. Do you know that we are Levites in the New Covenant? We are a priesthood. God is looking for people to carry the presence, right? But here, here's what I want you to see. I believe this is so, so important for us. Is David... David tried to set up a neat structure to carry the presence. He tried to establish this man-made structure. And I I just feel like 
our beholding sets are really going to push us in a beautiful way in that we're going to really learn to, to see that Jesus is Lord and not our structure. Like a lot of times in the West, I feel like we set up these neat structures. It's the perfect 75-minute service to the T. And if God wants to move any other way, we don't allow it because the structure is the Lord. And I can feel like God wants to help us grow in this as well. And I feel like these sets are. And I, I feel like we're really going to learn. It's not that we're just letting anything and everything go. It's not that we're going to some unbiblical realm. But it's saying, man, Jesus, we come prepared. But ultimately, when you show up and you move, like we're going to move with you. Because what you're doing is better than what I've prepared. Do you understand me? But I want you to hear this. This, I think, is so beautiful. Is Ohio and, and Uzzah, their names mean something, and I think it's really prophetic as well. Ohio means brotherly or friendly. Uzzah means strength. And so David put around the cart, or put before the cart, brotherly, friendly. What do I mean? I mean that I feel like we can put things before the presence to try to make God more attractive, to try to make him more relevant, to try to, to try to make it more appealing to people. And we put these things in there thinking that this is what people want when actually we're actually robbing them from what their hearts desire. So what do we do? We put gifting before the presence. We put personality before the presence. We put aesthetics before the presence and we start winning people with that thing rather than God. And what you win them with is what you have to keep them with now. And actually what we put before it actually hinders them from encountering the one that would change their life forever. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. Like if we make him center, he'll start drawing hearts. He'll start drawing hearts. And what I feel that the Lord is doing in this hour is ultimately Uzzah, the strength that man tries to find from those things, he killed it. He killed it. And I feel like God wants to kill in our body and in our own lives those things that we, we try to find strength in more than just God himself. Like he's waiting for a body that would say, you know what, I'm, I'm done putting Ohio's before so that I can try to make it more attractive to people. I'm going to trust that actually every person that's even here right now was made to know God. And that if I can just, in the most raw, simplest way, get people to see him, they will see what their hearts have always been made for. So like that's the journey we've been going on to be a house of prayer. Does it make sense? You guys with me? All right, so for today, what I want to do is I want to look at Amos 9 and... The house of prayer movement, this worship prayer movement, right, this, this, this spirit of, of worship and prayer we see in David's tabernacle, I want you to know that it's actually, it's a kingdom movement. So that's what it's really unto. It's, yes, we're starting with ministering to the Lord, and we're going to get this where it's just day and night, like, this is what we're going to do, but I want you to know it's not just something that's restricted to that room. What it's going to lead to is it's going to lead to the kingdom exploding around this place, it's going to lead to power flowing from this place. It's going to lead to purity flowing from this place. Do you know what happened after Jesus cleansed the temple in verse 13? And he said, my house should be a house of prayer. Do you know what the very next scripture says? It says, and the lame and the blind came into the temple and he healed them. The moment, the moment he started driving out all this other stuff, and the moment Jesus took his rightful place, guess what happened? Kingdom activity started coming back. Like power started arising again because they were connecting with the Lord. Like I want you to just be stirred today and provoke that what we're engaging in and tapping into, man, we're going to see God's kingdom release, lives change forever, forever through this. And so David's tabernacle, it wasn't just a restoration of worship and prayer. We're going to see how it was so connected to the kingdom actually thriving. Davidic worship in the Old Testament was the key to seeing the kingdom of David thrive, 
right? So let's look at this. Amos chapter 9, verses 11 to 15. Hopefully you guys are all there. Man, didn't we luck out with beautiful weather today? It's really good. I could just go for hours now, guys. <laughs> just, uh, I, I don't know if I can. <laughs> all right, Amos chapter 9. So look, Amos, let's be honest. How many have read Amos? <laughs> all right, no, I'm kidding. Amos, is a, it's a small book. It's nine chapters, okay? And, and let, me put it, let me put it this way. It's, uh, it's nine chapters, 146 verses, of which... The first 141 verses are all diagnostic, meaning they're all speaking into the issues of Israel. So for 141 verses, Amos is being used by God to just, to just expose like immorality, adultery, fornication, all of this stuff. And then you get to these last five verses and you realize all that God was doing was not to meant to crush the people but to awaken them. And now you're going to see this incredible promise that God begins to speak, and it's deeply connected to David's tabernacle. This is 250 years after the revival fires were burning on Mount Zion under David's leadership. Like, Israel had gone wayward. They grew cold. And what we're going to see is God is going to bring them back to this simplicity of getting around the presence of the Lord. And Amos is going to prophesy the incredible hope that we have in this hour for this last day outpouring. Okay, so we're going to see how this is so beautiful. So we're going to really teach today. Here we go. I'm going to start in verse 11, just read the first two verses. We'll camp out there, probably spend most of our time in the first two. And I'll read the, read the rest towards the end. It says this, On that day, I will raise up the tabernacle of David. Remember, this is God being their Amos, prophesying how he's going to restore. I'm going to raise up the tabernacle of David on that day, which has fallen down and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. Verse 12, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does this thing. All right, let's, let's just stop there. The upcoming verses are, man, it's just incredible what it's about to release. But I want to just unpack this for a moment because this is the key. This, like, city transformation that it's about to get into is all connected to God restoring the tabernacle of David. And the first thing he says is, on that day. Well, that's important, that time element, because when is that day, right? Well, if you go to Acts chapter 15, don't go there, just listen. When the Gentiles were being hit by the Spirit of God and being brought into the kingdom of God, there was a council that was set up called the Jerusalem Council because they, the Jewish Christians were trying to understand how do we make sense of what's happening? Do they need to follow the law of Moses and be circumcised? And James was led by the Spirit in Acts 15 to actually quote Amos 9. There's a lot to it, but here's the point. James and the apostles realized that that day that Amos prophesied, they were in it. <laughs> Like that day that he was talking about when God would restore the tabernacle of David, they realized it was actually in the time of the Messiah, specifically when Jesus ascended and now poured out his spirit for the church to carry on his mission. So like we are living in that day where it says God is restoring the tabernacle of David. Is that a literal tabernacle? No. It's not a literal tent. That's not what we're going after. It's, 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 the, it's the spirit of worship and intercessory prayer. It is the spirit of being so centered and connected to the presence of the Lord that God says, I'm going to start restoring and bringing people back to what it means to be a house of prayer. And when I do that, man, what we're about to see is the kingdom is going to start exploding. 
Do you know that this is happening right now around the world? Like what we're doing, we haven't come up with this idea. We're, we're walking in the fulfillment of prophecy. Do you know that in 1984, I was reading through some statistics with houses of prayer. In 1984, it was recorded that there were 25 houses of prayer. That's it. Do you know what there is today? And these numbers have probably been updated. There's 10,000 houses of prayer, meaning 10,000 ministries, bodies, churches that are committing in some form or fashion to night and day worship and prayer. They're coming under Davidic worship. 10,000. Listen, it's incredible. South Korea, South Korea under leadership of David Cho, which is the largest church in the world. This is not like a uh, a superficial megachurch, they have what's called prayer mountains. They have 200 of them. 200, about a million attend every year. They come away to these mountains and they just seek the Lord in fasting, worship, and prayer. Do you know that South Korea has way surpassed us when it comes to sending out missionaries? Like they actually send missionaries to America because it's all being birthed from being before the presence of the Lord. Like this is what we're actually coming into. China has underground churches, right? We all know this. China has in this underground system that is so highly organized, they have within it 5,000 groups that have numerous people that are committed to a 24-7 prayer watch. 5,000 groups that have multiple people that all they do is they take turns, Leviticus 6.13, putting themselves on the altar so that the fire keeps burning. And even when there's persecution, no matter what happens, the church just explodes because God said he would honor his word. And when people start coming back to this, things start changing. Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore have over 100 houses of prayer. Israel has, this was a few years ago, has eight houses of prayer. Israel is having this being birthed in them. In the U.S., I was going on Kansas City, uh, IHOP in Kansas City. They have this whole page. They say now there's at least one house of prayer in every state in, the, in America. Some have multiple. Every state has at least one body that's just committed to being before the Lord in some way, again, 24-7 or or a lot each, each and every day. Pete Gregg from the UK, he started something called the 24-7 movement, which is uh, basically they, they, they go in, it's actually launched in the 28 countries. It's the same principle of worship prayer before the presence of the Lord. It's now in 28 countries. They do these things called boiler rooms, which is really uh, connected with young adults and the youth, where they just, they come in for like a weekend, and they just like go straight through with teams coming in, and they worship, pray, and it's incredible what happens. Like, lives are completely changed. Why am I sharing this? Because we are tapping into something that's bigger than ourselves. And I want your heart to be provoked. Like, what we're doing by saying, hey, we're going to make our primary activity to set up times, prepare a place for us to just come before the Lord and minister to his heart and worship and pray and intercede. I want you to know that crazy stuff is going to happen from this. So here, I want you to, um, I want you to pull out this sheet. How many of you got a handout? I hope, hopefully a lot, of, a lot of you did. You crumpled it up on me, Josh. Wow. <laughs> I want to take it. I'm going to get in that in a second. If you don't have it, then look on with someone next to you. But listen, we, uh, we shouldn't be surprised by this because this is actually the precedent that was set up in, in the Bible going back to the Old Covenant. Think about this. 141 verses all about the waywardness of the people. Last five verses, God's going to give his solution to the idolatry and to the, and to the basically rebellion of his people. And what's his solution? He says, I'm going to restore David's tabernacle. Like, this is so important. What do we do with all the issues going on in our world right now? What do we do with, with racial divides and all the stuff we see? Like, where do we point people? And God says, it's simple. Point them to me. 
get people to come around me and watch how I start working all this thing, all these things out. So here, I want you to see this sheet because this is incredible. There are seven Old Testament revivals in, um, in the Old Testament because they're Old Testament revivals. <laughs> There's seven of them. And you know what's amazing is every time there was a revival, every time the people went astray, do you know what the answer was? God would raise up a reformer who would reinstate Davidic worship. And once people started connecting with the presence of God again, the nation would start flourishing again. So once they got people around the presence and the Levites came back to worshiping day and night, all of a sudden the kingdom of Israel started moving again. It started reviving. And I want you to see this because God, God commanded kings after David. Do you know he commanded them to keep Davidic worship? It's amazing. If you read through the scriptures, you'll start to see it. And when they did not keep it, and when ungodly kings came in and said, you know what, we're going to put the presence on the side, we're going to put God's mandate for this heavenly worship to the side, the nation started to plummet. But once someone came back, a leader, and said, hey guys, we're going to get back to what God had commanded, guess what? The nation started to thrive again. So look, look, just look at this sheet. On the left, I gave you uh, the seven, the seven uh, leaders, because they're not all kings, and uh, again, we're going to teach for a moment. And on the right side, I gave you scriptures or scripture that highlights that, that key verse of calling the Levites back to worship God as, as David had commanded, right? So on the left, you see Solomon. Because technically David, who then gave it to Solomon, that was a revival underneath the, after the leadership of Saul. So we start here. If you look, then you go to the next column. You see Jehoshaphat. And I gave you the approximate year of this. Guys, you can go right in the scriptures and see this. Look what it says for the scripture for Jehoshaphat. 2 Chronicles 20, 19 to 28. says, the Levites stood up to praise the Lord. He appointed those who should sing to the Lord. They came with stringed instruments. This is what David commanded to the house of the Lord. I mean, it's phenomenal. Each and every one did the same thing. Joash with Jehoiada. Jehoiada was actually the high priest. He's really the one who led it, and then he appointed Joash. You have Hezekiah, Josiah, Zerubbabel, Ezra and Nehemiah. Every single Old Testament revival is because Davidic worship was reintroduced. Like what we're doing, guys, what we're about to see because of what we're committed to, if we can catch this, this is, is so much bigger than just us gathering on a Friday night. I can't go through all these, but can I highlight, I'll highlight one for you that I think is, man, it will give you the point of the rest. Hezekiah, right? Hezekiah, he came when Israel was in some of its darkest days. He came... Uh, uh, into leadership after his father Ahaz. Ahaz was considered one of the more wicked kings. Ahaz, um, he, he practiced idolatry. He actually sacrificed several of his sons. And I want you to catch like the depths of darkness the nation was in. Uh, he, um, he actually uh, um, sold and stripped the temple of its gold, uh, its gold lining and sold it to Assyria to try to bribe them. Ultimately, uh, Ahaz would actually shut the temple doors he would actually even shut access to the porch of the temple. He would shut down all sacrifices. And then what he did is he actually placed pagan altars at every street corner in Jerusalem. Because at the end of the day, if you shut down worship, we're worshipers. So we're going to find something, right? So, so they, they, they begin to look to these pagan altars. And the nation just plummets. And finally, he comes to pass and Hezekiah, his son, comes into reign. And Hezekiah was tight with Isaiah. They had probably been praying for this moment for a long time. And it says that when Hezekiah comes into office on the first day of the first month, meaning the first move that he does is he says, we're going to open up the temple. And he opens up the temple and he sends the Levites and the priests to go into it. And they actually purge the temple of all the idols. 
Come on, we're gonna understand Jesus a little bit better what he did in Matthew 21. They actually come, they purge the temple, probably have to even clean out dust that things has been closed up for, for a long time. And then it says, after this eight days, he reinstates Davidic worship. He then has the Levites gather and begin to lead a procession to the temple where they just begin to worship God in such an incredible way. And it says that there was, God was so breathing all over what Hezekiah was doing that Hezekiah knew he had to bring everyone in. So it says that he sent out letters to all the cities of Judah. He even sent out letters to the remnant of, of um, uh, Manasseh and Ephraim. And he called them all in. And, they, and some hearts were so hard and they wouldn't respond. But many came. And it says, think about this, where they were. They're worshiping God. They're sitting on the presence. Life is flowing. It says that they celebrate the Passover meal for the first time in a century. A hundred years they hadn't celebrated the Passover. Like, this nation is changing rapidly because one man said, we're going to come back to the presence of the Lord. They then begin to worship, pray, celebrate for seven days. God is so all over this. You know what happens at the end of seven days? The people say, we don't want to go. They do seven more days. Now they're going for 14 days. The people were so revived and touched that they came to Hezekiah and said, we want to join your reformation. And then the people actually went into the streets, house by house, street by street, tearing down every idol that was put up during Ahaz. This nation was revived because one reformer came in and said, we're going to be committed to the presence of the Lord. Like, this is what God is looking for. Like, leaders in a body that say, we're going to do this, right? So now, listen, now you understand what Jesus did a little bit better in Matthew 21. Like, you'd say, well, this is an old covenant thing. No, 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 no. Jesus was a reformer. Do you understand when Jesus came into the temple and began to cleanse it out, and he says, it is written, he says, guys, this was the precedent in Hezekiah's day. This is what it was in Jehoshaphat's day. This is what it was in Josiah's day. And now I stand before you, and it's the same thing in my day. I've come to cleanse this temple and bring it back to being centered on God himself, me. Like, this is what he's doing. But, it, but oh, man, can I teach just one more second on this? <laughs> Listen, because you say, okay, it's even better than this in the new covenant. Just hear me for a moment. In the old covenant, where we just saw how deeply connected worship and prayer was with the kingdom, right? Technically, in the old covenant, there had to be two separate tabernacles. There was, David had the tent of David, which was the worship and the prayer. That was what the Levites did. But then on the same Mount Zion, David had his palace, which is known as the house of David, which is where the kings would reside. So check this out. You have two tabernacles, essentially. One is the tent of David, which is what the Levites were for. One was the house of David, which is where the Judahites or the kings would be reserved. So when it talks about Jesus coming to sit on the throne of David, it's talking about the house of David, the kingship. So here you have these two tabernacles in the Old Covenant. We just saw how deeply connected worship and prayer is to the kingdom moving. But they were distinct and separate. The priests, their job as Levites, worship, prayer, communion with God is really how you could sum it up. Minister to the heart, but only Levites could do it. The kings had government, rule, authority. You could speak it as this, dominion. The two work together but separate. And then Jesus comes on the scenes. And he reforms everything, but check this out. In John 114, it says that Jesus is the word, the word became flesh, and the flesh dwelt among us. The word dwelt means tabernacle. Jesus is the true tabernacle where the priesthood and kingship converges. 
You see, Jesus is considered the great high priest. He is the king of kings. Not only does he reform, but he takes it into a place that it could never exist under the old covenant. Jesus doesn't come under the order of Aaron as priesthood. He comes in the order of Melchizedek, who was a kingly priest. Do you know what that means for us? When we come into Christ, our identity is primarily twofold. You are a priest and a king. Do you know that's what it says in Revelation 1, 5, and 6? It says that you were bought by the blood of Jesus and you were brought into a kingdom and priests. So right now here gathering in Christ is a kingdom and it's a priesthood. And we've got this mandate now that we can actually minister to the heart of God, worship, pray, seek his face like the Levites did, and then we get to partner with God to see his kingdom move here. Like, is this not incredible what Jesus has done and what we are stepping into? Our mission statement, beholding Jesus, bringing his kingdom. Beholding Jesus, that's the priestly identity. Bringing his kingdom is our kingly identity, but the two go hand in hand. Jesus has reinstated our original mandate. We lost this in the garden, do you know that? We lost communion and dominion. Do you know that when God created Adam and Eve, do you know what they were called to do? I want you to just see what Jesus has done for us. When we were in the garden, it says that he gave a, he gave a command, the first command really, to Adam and Eve, it says to fill the earth, to, to multiply, and ultimately says to subdue it. That's a military term. In other words, what he's really saying is I want you to extend the borders of Eden throughout this world. They, they were actually, that's, that was their kingly identity. They're going to co-reign with God. And do you know how they would do that? Genesis 2, verse 15, it says that when God placed Adam in the garden, he gave him this command. He said, you are to work it and keep it. Check this out. I'll leave it here. In the Hebrew language, those two verbs, work and keep, it's only used to describe one other function. It's only used to describe the role of priests. Adam and Eve were actually priests. This is why they walked with God in communion. Do you know that the garden is actually a picture of the temple? You have, the gar- you have Eden, which is the holy place, and then the garden, which is the holy of holies. Do you know that's why when Adam and Eve were banished, they put flaming cherubim there so they couldn't come back in? Do you know what's on the veil that separates the holy from the holy place? Cherubim. This was actually a picture of the first temple, and Adam and Eve were priests unto the Lord. And so they would actually extend the borders of God's kingdom through intimacy with him. And we lost that, but Jesus has reinstated it. That if we would take up this mantle and begin to worship and seek his face around his presence, we will see the kingdom of God move. I don't know about you, but that excites me. Like, that is unbelievable, guys. Like, we don't need to get caught up in all the strategies of the enemy. We, we talk about this often. They were going to just extend the kingdom by walking with God, just staying fixed on the Lord. All right, let's keep reading this. We'll finish off here. Verse 12 says this, says that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does this thing. This is, man, there's so much to each of this. So who can be brought into this? Who can be brought into this incredible mandate of being a priest and a king and seeing God now work through us this way? Well, what this is basically saying is anyone and everyone. Anyone and everyone says the remnant of Edom. Again, in Acts, when James quoted this, he doesn't use Edom. He says the rest of mankind. Simplified this way is that because of Jesus, you don't just have to be Jewish now. Any person through the blood of Jesus can come into this and be a part of ministering to the Lord and being used to extend his kingdom now. In fact, if you want to get even more specific, Edom is where we get Esau. 
Esau and Jacob is very important because many Muslims trace their lineage back to Esau. There's a move that's upon us where every nation, even Muslims, those that we can think, man, how could God touch them, are going to be brought into the kingdom of God when people start coming around worship and prayer again. And Jesus is enough for you to be brought into this. So check this out. Verse 13, let's keep this moving. Listen to what it says. It says, now here's the promises of this when we reinstate this. It says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. When the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed, the mountains shall drip with sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. So what this means is when you start bringing people to a house of prayer again, again, worship prayer in the presence of the Lord, this is saying that the kingdom is about to explode right now. <laughs> what this says, listen, listen to this imagery. When the plowman shall overtake the reaper, this is actually speaking to an acceleration of a harvest of souls. The way it would work in the Old Testament, according to Leviticus, is plowmen would go out, they would plow the field, and they would release seed. That was for a season. And then what would happen is the reapers would come. The harvest would come, and they would pull up all of the fruit. And typically, a normal harvest would last for a certain period of time. It would come back to November, and the plowman would come back up, and the reaper would be done because there's no more to pull up. But what this is saying is the plowman will overtake the reaper, meaning there will be such an abundance of harvest of souls that when it's time for the reaper to stop because the plowman's back to put more seed down, the reaper's still picking up from before. The plowman is actually now working with them, saying, man, you're still picking up from before and there's still more to come. He's going to replant and replow again. Like this is incredible promise of, of a great end time harvest that will come into the church Worship movement, listen, the worship and prayer movement, this means it's a missions movement. Book of Acts, upper room, guys, 120 in the upper room. What were they doing? Actually, do you know that God, God commanded 500 in 1 Corinthians 15, only 120 showed up. I don't know what happened to the other 380, but maybe it's because they were committed to this one thing and they said, man, we got to do something else. But 120 showed up and 120 were locked into their eyes on the Lord, and 120 were, were engaging with the Lord and praying and probably worshiping in some form, and guess what happened? The Spirit of God fell out on them. And what happened? The greatest missions movement we've ever seen. The nations were touched because this group prioritized being with him. Have you ever heard of the Moravians? Listen, the Moravians, I, I, just, I, want, you to, I just want you to so catch this. The Moravians, um, there's a lot to them, but I'll, I'll, I'll just kind of condense it. Moravian movement, 1727, there was a man by the name of Count Zinzendorf. That's a name right there. <laughs> he was a German. He was, in his, uh, he was in his teens. He was so gripped by the presence of the Lord that at a young age, he said how his, really his pursuit was to create places for people to encounter the blessed presence. And what happened was is when he was in his 20s, he was very wealthy. He wound up purchasing an estate and one day a pastor preacher came by and they began to have a conversation and the preacher began to share how the Moravians were being deeply persecuted by the Catholic Church. This was still very early on in the Reformation, so Protestants and Catholics were at war. And so what, what uh, Count Zinzendorf decided to do is he said, well, I'm going to give as much asylum to as many as I can. He, he made his house, his estate, a refuge for 300 Moravians. And what began to happen is they began to set up times to seek the Lord together in the blessed presence. And what began as just a, a little bit of a, uh, just one act of faithfulness turned into a 100-year prayer movement. 
Hundred-year prayer movement. They assigned people day and night, nonstop. They prayed and sought the Lord and would worship before him in this estate. It says their key scripture was Leviticus 6.13, which is, again, that they shall keep the altar burning. And they saw themselves as a sacrifice to be laid up on there. So night and day they worshiped. Do you know that Count Zinzendorf became the first Protestant leader in a missions movement? Never before they had done this. Never before had missions been set up like this. But he was so moved by what was happening that they began to send people out. The Moravian movement is still considered arguably the greatest missionary movement of all time in that hundred years. There are so many ministries that are birthed today that somehow connect back to this worship prayer movement that started in this estate. Do you know that some of these guys actually sold themselves into slavery? Sold themselves into slavery just so that they could win over the slave owners. Now, you need to hear from the Lord if you're going to do that. But my point is this, is that these guys, this all started because they got before the Lord. The missions exploded because the people prioritized his presence. So here we go. We'll finish off here. It says, the mountains shall drip with sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. So there's an accelerated harvest. And then it says the mountains, it's going to drip with wine. What's the imagery? It's wine is being poured out. What does that sound like? <laughs> Sounds like Pentecost. The outpouring of the Spirit, and they accuse the disciples of being drunk on wine. Point is, is that wine and Holy Spirit are often associated together. Here's the point, is that as we engage in this, the, God is going to release fresh outpourings of the Holy Spirit. Do you know how important that is? Do you know how important the anointing of God is? Like gifting can't change anyone. Like the anointing is what breaks the yoke. It's the anointing that sets the captives free. It's the anointing that binds up the hearts of the brokenhearted. It's the anointing that imparts joy and beauty for broken ashes. Like we need the anointing of God. And this says that when a body starts doing this, God has promises, I will release and pour out fresh wine upon this body. Not one time, it'll be again and again and again. And finally, these last two verses says, I will bring back the captives of my people, Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. And finally, verse 15, I will plant them in their land, and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. Ray, you could, you could uh, leave us out with some music, please. There's probably layers of fulfillment. Some actually say that partial fulfillment is the literal restoration of Israel in their land, which I think happened 1948. <laughs> But there's this, there's this hope and this promise here that when people come around the presence of the Lord, accelerated harvest, fresh outpouring, and now what it says here, it says that cities will start to be transformed. It says that they will rebuild the waste cities. Do you know that areas that have been decimated by principalities because they've gone unchallenged, because we've just allowed strongholds to be set up over areas where poverty has been the normal. Like sickness has been the normal. Racism has been the normal. Injustice has just hovered over areas. This says when people start doing this, there's going to be an anointing released and you're going to start seeing stuff that has had lockdowns in areas break. Like it's like Daniel praying and fasting and there was a heavenly war. He, they couldn't see breakthrough until that thing was broken. So as we're coming before the Lord in worship and prayer, What's happening is stuff is starting to shift over this community, over this island, and then all of a sudden we just kind of step into a ready people, ready harvest. David knew this. David knew that when they sang songs and he had Levites worship, that they were not just singing nice melodies. 
because he says that God enthrones the praises of his people. David knew that when they started worshiping that something happened where God would literally enthrone himself in that place. And wherever the king enthrones himself, the kingdom of God is there. And all of a sudden, you start seeing things change. Everything starts shifting. But God does not override free will. He doesn't override free will. Which is why if Saul said, we're going to put the presence in the barn, God says, well, then I'm not going to show up. But then David came along and said, well, we're going to put the presence in the center. And guess what? God says, now there's a man. I'm going to honor this. Because this, because this people are saying, I'm most important and I'm center. Now I'm going to show up. God waits for a people to honor him, to invite him, to welcome him, to say you are everything. And when we do that, God begins to show up. God begins to show up. So we're living in the days of Amos, his prophecy. It's upon us. It's happening around the world. And we're just a small part that's joining in. But again, this whole last few weeks, next week, I simply want to provoke your heart to get involved in this. I'll say it again. By the end of this month, we'll have a few more sets. And before you know it, every day, all day, in some way, we're going to have Levites, the true Levites, new covenant. We're going to have kings coming before the Lord. And we're going to see God move mightily. Do you believe it? Like, I believe this. I believe this. I believe this in my heart. So come on, let's, let's close in prayer here. Oh, we thank you, Lord. Oh, we thank you, Jesus. Who is like you? You are a reformer like no other. Like no other. You are the true tabernacle. You have given us back what we lost. You have made us into priests and kings. And we know that it's all because of you. And I just pray again, Lord, that in this body, that, that what you've reinstated to us, what you've purchased with your life, that we would not take it lightly. Lord, we'd see it's a great, it's a great privilege, but you've given us a mandate. And I just pray that like the Levites of the old, that we would be carriers of your presence. Lord, teach us how to minister to your heart. Teach us how to, how to worship and seek you like no other. Lord, teach us how to walk in authority. Teach us how to extend your kingdom. I pray, Lord, that you would find Leviticus 6.13 in this house. People that are just laying their lives on the altar so that the fire keeps burning. I thank you, Lord, you've made it simple. We just stay fixed on you, and you begin to transform, and you begin to move, and you begin to speak. And so, Lord, as best as we know how, we want to be a people that say, you are invited, you are welcomed, you are honored, you are first place, you are everything. I pray, Lord, that you would kill Ahios and Uzas in our body. I pray you'd kill it in our own lives. I pray for those that are frustrated personally by not seeing fruit in their life. I pray they would see it's this simple. They've lost connection with you. They've lost the simplicity of abiding in you. You promised if we abide, we will bear not just fruit, but much fruit. So I just pray against the complications, religion, all that stuff that makes it so hard to, to understand. And we just see that it's just locked into you, Lord. May your grace 
May your grace abound on this house to pursue this calling that you've given us. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, guys. God bless you guys. Next week, we'll speak into this one more time. Make sure you sign up for Friday. And last thing, um, I just want to let you guys know, if you're part of this body, is that uh, many of you are aware there was a, um, it's an understatement to say it's a tragedy, but uh, Anthony Edwards had passed away a few weeks ago. Actually, his wife, Kira, is here with kids. And tonight at 5 o'clock, we're doing a memorial service right out here. And it's really going to be, um, I believe it's going to be an incredible time. We're going to share the gospel. We believe a lot of people are going to show up, and God's going to move. So I want to invite you more than anything to be here to support Kira and her family and as we honor Anthony's life. Amen? All right, guys. Bless you.